excited to uh, excited to get to study God's Word with you. Did you get, uh, everybody have a binder? Everybody got one of those? Okay, good. Uh, you could open up, if you want, to the front, and we'll just kind of, here's the uh, You Are Here map on the front page, second page, I guess, after the title page. Um, sessions in the study, we are on number two right now, uh, studying death and the intermediate state. Um, and, and some, we won't, that's like strange words. What is the intermediate, what is the intermediate state? So we'll talk about that. Uh, so if you missed last week, that was on kind of an introduction to the end times. And, uh, uh, if you missed that, we do have binders. We've got like extra loose leaf. If you don't have last week's in your binder out in the resource center and, um, Sam is, is recording these. That's why I wear this. It's, I'm. We know it's not projecting, but it is recording, and he gets these up by Monday each week, all right, along with the sermon. So if you do miss one, especially if you're going to serve in children's ministry, something like that, you can, you can always go and, and, and listen to it, and you'll have the notes as well. So, uh, so I just wanted to highlight another book. Uh, last week, we, we highlighted the first one. Um, so under recommended resources there on the first page, um, there are two that are... Um, a little bit more of the kinds of books about the end times that will answer questions. The one I highlighted last week by John Piper, I would recommend as the one to cultivate your affections for the Lord. But, but this one today is really a, an answer your questions. So it's called The Bible and the Future by a fella, Anthony Hokema. Um, as this is a theological book, all right? So I'm letting you know, read this if you want to know more than I cover here in the class. Or if you want to know some of where did I go to get what I'm teaching in the class, this is one of my guides. Um, but for all that, for being a theological book, it's a pretty easy read. He, he, he writes uh, in the ways that we talk. And so easy to follow, easy to read. If you're interested in more, I would recommend this. And as you can see, I kind of wrote a little bit about each of these books here, uh, which you can, you can look at. All right. All right, so we're looking at death and the intermediate state this morning. Figured we'd pick something kind of cheerful. Uh, yeah. So, um, so in a certain way, what we're, what we're going to do is I, I'm going to teach what the Bible says about these things. And, and I'm aware that, that different folks in the room are uh, different distances from facing death. And if I was to sit down one-on-one -on -one with somebody who has faced the death of a loved one or is facing their own disease or so something like that, uh, the way that I would communicate these truths would be, I'll say, pastoral. I would be concerned to, to encourage them and to help them have faith in the Lord through whatever season they're walking through. And just the nature of what we're doing today is going to be a little bit more clinical. It's going to be just a little bit more of, here's what the Bible says, boom, boom, boom. But for all that, I would say it's preparatory for all of us. Because you might not feel like this is particularly close to you. But your feelings and that reality have nothing to do with each other at all. Uh, and so may the Lord prepare us to support each other through this season of life, 
that we will all face, to, to face it ourselves as we look to our Savior. Uh, so may the Lord do that as we, as we look to this together. All right, so two points today. The first is death, and the second is the intermediate state. Uh, I'll be honest with you that the notes that you have, I've added a few things too as I've prepared to actually teach those notes. And so you might want a pen or something so that you can, some, can add some, uh, some thoughts. So before I get into the three, the three ways that death is used in Scripture, the three kinds of death that Scripture speaks of, I just want to give a little bit of background. That first of all, death is a result of the fall. Right? Death is not part of how God originally created the world, but clearly in Scripture, death came as a result of sin. Romans 5.12 is a great verse for this. And it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we ought not think of death as simply the inevitable reality when there's life, there's going to be death. It's understandable if we think those ways because we live in a post-fall world. And so where there is life, there will be death. But that is not the eternal plan or design of God. That's not how it always will be. It is how it is right now. And the reason it is that way right now is because of sin. And what God had said back in the garden, right? You remember... He warned them very clearly not to eat the fruit of the tree because on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then, of course, the first words of the serpent, are you, are you sure? Are you, is that really what God meant? Are you sure you're going to? You won't die. God's jealous, doesn't want you to be like him. Off we go down the race, down the races. Before, um, before we get into the, the types of death, I thought just to mention um, the kind of what is life, or let's describe life for a minute, as human beings. So human beings are embodied souls, or we might say embodied spirits. It's, um, it's called a dichotomy. There's, there's two pieces to us, all right? There's our inner man and our outer man. You know, the, the scripture that says the, the inner man, the, the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day, right? So we are, we are embodied souls, and God created us to be this way. In other words, it, it's a little bit wrong to say the true you is your soul. Well, yes, this soul is a big part of the true you, but the true you, as God designed it, is to be an embodied soul. We're, we're both, and we're designed to be both. All right, so that's, that's the design for, for, for life, for human beings. So now let's talk about the three different uh, kinds of death in the Scripture. The first and most obvious is physical death. If you're following along, we're right there at the top, physical death. The temporary cessation of life in the physical body and the separation of the soul from the body. So... In physical death, the soul and the body are separated from each other. And the body ceases to live. It's amazing that the definition has the word temporary in there. Did you, did you catch that? The temporary. Because that is the reality. And we're going to get there 
further down the road. But that, that's the reality for all people, not just believers. The reality that for all people, death is temporary. Physical death is, is temporary. So Matthew 10, uh, 28 says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's the two pieces again, right? And one of those is talking about physical death, the, the destruction of the body. And the other, we'll talk about in a minute, eternal judgment at the hands of, of God. And then Hebrews 9, 27 speaks of physical death when it says, it is appointed for man once to die. And after that comes judgment. So, so God said in the garden, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then they eat of it and they don't die. Now, this is interesting. So there's, there's, a couple, there's a couple things. There is a reality that they died in another way. We're going to talk about what spiritual death is here in a minute. That did happen right away. But there was also a, an extension of mercy, an immediate extension of mercy, where death was delayed. They did not immediately die. If they had immediately died, we would not be here talking about it. Right? That would have just been the end of the, the human race. Uh, but God had redemption in mind for humanity. And so, so death was delayed. Um, however, the process of death in their bodies began. And we could call that process today aging. Um, happy birthday, Sean. Um <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, to be living is, is to be dying, right? You kind of get that, your body gets kind of put together between like, what, zero and 20, something like that. And the rest of the time, you're just trying to keep it from falling apart, right? Um, that is death at work, taking ground, taking ground, taking ground. And it began to be at work in Adam and Eve as well in the moment that they sinned. All right. Second kind of death is a spiritual death. This is a separation from God. God is the source of all life. And so when we are separated from God, we experience spiritual death. And, and this, is the, this is the state of every man and woman when we were born. We were born separated from God because we're born as sinners. We might not have had the opportunity to sin, but all we lacked was the opportunity to sin. Already deep within us was, was a desire against God and a desire for our own way. That was, that was all of us as we were born into this world. And so we were born spiritually dead. That happened in the garden when God came into the garden, right? And he, he called out, and they were hiding. Hmm. They were already hiding. Something had already happened between them and God. They had never hidden from God before. Now they're hiding. God mercifully makes them clothes by killing an animal. It's the first sacrifice for sin, covering them up in the Bible. And then they get kicked out of the garden. 
and they can't be in God's presence. And it wasn't until the tabernacle was built with garden imagery all throughout it that the, the beginning of that man and God can be together again began. The tabernacle and then the temple and then Christ and now in, in God's, uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But, but spiritual death happened right away. They were separated from God because of their sin. And Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that as our condition as well. So Ephesians 2 uh, verses 1 and 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this is describing everybody's condition before Christ is dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 4 says the same thing, that of those who are currently not believers, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They're alienated from from the life of God. All right. Uh, The last way that death is used in Scripture, we, we could relate to eternal judgment. It's eternal death, an irreversible and endless period of punishment and separation from the presence of God. These are weighty things to talk about. It is irreversible, and it is endless, and it is punishment. The scripture sometimes calls it the second death. Revelation 2.11 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, presumably then, the first death is our physical death. And the second death is that death of judgment on the last day. Which again is referenced in Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right. So before we move on, a couple other points under this. And let us think about what Christ endured on the cross. Because he endured all three. We tend to think of his physical death. And well, we should. There there he is, dying upon the cross and saying to the Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's another good verse for the two parts of man, right? Body, going in the tomb. Spirit, Lord, I commit your, the, my spirit into your hands. But there he is, clearly dying a physical death. I don't have to argue for that one much. But as for a spiritual death, what is spiritual death? Well, for that, we might need to ask, what is spiritual life? And, and we get that in the book of John. Jesus tells us what, what spiritual life is. What is eternal life? This is eternal life. That they know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It is knowing God. 
And what did Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in that moment, the life-giving Father withdrew from God the Son. And if it is eternal life to know the Father, then Christ did not have that at the time. And then, of course, what did Christ endure on the cross but the wrath of God? And it's, it's hard for us to picture, but <clears throat> he took all of hell for all of his people in three hours. He didn't get an abbreviated version just because the time period was abbreviated. How is that even possible? For it must have been a kind of infinite amount of wrath condensed into that time. Which is why only Christ could endure this for us. Because you had to be God to endure such a thing. And so he endured that as well. <clears throat> now why did he endure that? To deliver us from all three deaths. Now, we will face the first death. Unless Christ returns, we're going to face the first death. But it will be temporary because of what Christ did. Because as he rose from the grave, he's promised resurrection to all of his people. And so he's turned around physical death. By his own death, he turned around death, left death in the grave, death died, and now we can, we can live with him. He turned around spiritual death. And now, by taking away the wrath of God and, and tearing apart that curtain that kept us from God, now we can know God. And we can have eternal life. This is eternal life, that you can know God. And we can know that through, through Christ. And then the eternal death will not be ours, but we will be resurrected into the presence of God for all eternity because of the work of Christ. So it's... It's a remarkable thing that Christ endured all three of these to protect us from all three of these, that we could be with him forever. Okay, that's the end of number one. Any questions so far? So, so Jess is asking, you know, how is this, how, how, why do we call it the second death if it's not really death in, in that sense? Well, one answer, and I don't mean to be flippant, is because that's what the scripture says. So it gets to define its terms and we get to learn from them. But where your question is, is why, why does it use that term? Because we think of death as like, okay, we're, we're, we're gone. You know, and and that's not the case. Hell is not the cessation of life. The scriptures do not teach annihilation. They teach an ongoing and forever separation from God. So the best answer I can give is that when we say the word death, we're a little bit wrong in what we what we think because it in, really what death is from a scriptural perspective is separation from God. That's 
more than separation from our body. We tend to think of our body stops working. But it, it's the bigger, the bigger reality is we're separated from the source of life. Yeah, Johnny. Yes, there will be a resurrection, and after that resurrection, some will be resurrected unto life and some unto death, unto eternity, away from God. But as we're going to see in a minute, we're going to talk about the time between our death and resurrection and what happens there. So, yeah. You said three hours. Was I wrong? I, I, I don't know. You were just saying. Just the time. That, the, the short period of time that he was on the cross. So on the cross is when he endured that. He endured, yes, and an eternity of punishment in a finite period of time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is why, really, like, the cross is a, <laughs> I mean, it was real physical suffering, but it was just a picture for us to start to wrap our minds around what he was really going through, which was far, far deeper than what we can see, because it was that wrath of God poured out. Yeah. Um, so I was just thinking, like, I know this is like, we'll have a resurrection like his. Mm -hmm. like, we and unbelievers are both resurrected. Like, there's just this like, how are you different? Yes, it does. Is that going to be a topic? It's a further topic down the road. That one I get to punt. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And had I gotten away with it, mm -hmm. why am I being punished? Mm. Mm -hmm. Adam sinned. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, why am I held accountable? Mm -hmm. Why are we held accountable for what he did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Okay. Probably not an answer, but... Yeah. Oh, so, so let's say that your 25th grandfather and my 26th grandfather <laughs> uh, was a murderer. Uh, we will not be punished for that. He will, because of what he did. Um, however, we do get punished in two, for two different things, and most Christians don't know this. So the one we all know, we get punished for our sins. Right? We're all comfortable with this one. This is the one we're all comfortable with, right? So we would be outside of Christ, right? But the, the, the punishment due to us is due to our sins that we commit. However, the Scripture is also clear that we are born sinners and therefore born guilty. And that, then that's what you're talking about. But, I, but I, what I want to say is it's not because our 25th grandfather committed a particular sin. It's because Adam sinned. And he is what the scriptures call our federal head. So he's the head of the family. And whatever he does happens to the family. Now you could think, well, that's not fair. We'll take it up with God. <laughs> Because it's how he set things up. One second. So it's how he set things up. But if you don't think that's fair, then, then you're going to have a problem with the second Adam, whose family I trust you are in, and whose righteousness I trust you are clinging to. So you can be in Adam number one or Adam number two. And either way, you're inheriting from them the consequences of what they did. And praise God for Adam number two the greater Adam that we, are, that we are in, and we inherit his righteousness because we're in his family. Um, 
That's part of how God set up the world. Um, so yes, there's inherited guilt, but it's not really, it is through your parents, it's not really your parents' guilt. It's Adam's. It's the human race's guilt. Yeah, I have I have thought like one of my one of my daughters is reading one of the, these uh, historical fiction books about World War II, you know, and you're you're introduced to concentration camps and things which are which are valuable to be introduced to. Um, but you know, you can you can look at those folks and how could they ever do that? And it is right that, that there's there's a shame and contempt that should be heaped upon that kind of sin. And and yet, if you're honest and you think wow, okay, well, what if I had the same upbringing? And what if I had the same opportunity? And what if I had the same temptations? I, am I so sure? Am I so sure that I couldn't have, wouldn't have? Um, and I think that's what... So I, I, I'm just aware of the universe of sin that God has kept from me by simply not allowing that temptation into my life. It's not my righteousness, per se, his kindness to me. So, Jim, did you have a? Oh, uh, yeah, I was just going to say that uh, sometimes people have questions about us being identified with Adam as our federal head, but we're certainly rejoicing to be identified with the second Adam. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Praise God that He set it up. Good. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, something I think that is more confusing that many of us haven't thought too much about. So, uh, what do you tell your kids? If you trust Jesus when you die, you go to heaven. Right? Yes and amen. That's true. But the scripture has more to say than just that. And so let's consider it. And the theological term, which I think needs improving, but I can't improve on, <laughs> is the intermediate state. So, I'll explain why it's called that in a minute. But this is the state that every human enters upon death. Okay? Everyone enters into this state. And this is the separation of the body and the soul. The body dies and is placed in the earth. And the soul goes where the soul goes. This is the intermediate state. Uh, we're going to begin with the Westminster Confession of Faith to read what happens to believers. So the, the whole next page, talking about believers... And then we'll talk about unbelievers after that, okay? So, for believers, here's what Westminster has to say. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, have an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption 
of their bodies. We could just unpack that the rest of the time. But I've got a few kind of bullet points here. So after we die, it is a state of a bodiless existence. We exist as souls in the presence of God without our body. So our physical body remains in the grave. The soul continues in a state of uh, consciousness and communion with, with Christ. So a couple verses in Scripture that point to this, right? When Jesus was dying on the cross, about, about to experience physical death, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he had an anticipation that his spirit and his body were going to be heading in different directions. He was entrusting his spirit to God. And then as Stephen was being stoned in Acts 7.59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So he knew that his body was about to die, and so he was praying that the Lord would receive his spirit. Ecclesiastes, and the Old Testament has a lot more mystery around this than the New, but Ecclesiastes, very clearly, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And then, uh, oh yeah, and then Matthew 22, verse 32. Do you remember this? Jesus is like arguing with the, with the Sadducees who didn't believe in any life after death, right? And, and he just picks this very everyday verse out of the Old Testament and tells them how wrong they are. And the everyday phrase that he, picks, that he picked is when God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus then said, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What? W what? What? I mean, what he was saying is that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive right now. God is the God of those who are alive. Well, their bodies were clearly in the grave. Their souls, Christ affirms, are very much alive. And and we'll talk more about where they are. But first, let's wrap our minds around that from the time we die, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord as souls or spirits. I think we can use those interchangeably. Next, it is a state of consciousness. That is to say, we will have a will and desires, the ability to think and, and want things to be one way or or not to be another way. We see this in a few different places. In Revelation chapter 6, um, the, the souls of those who had been martyred are, are kept beneath the altar in heaven. And what it says here, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And, and these souls go on to actually cry out and ask, Lord, how long is this going to be? How long until you avenge us and return to earth and make all things right as they ought to be? So the souls clearly know what's going on on earth. And then we see in Revelation chapter 7, and this after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, 
crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here's a picture into heaven of those who have died. They're not angels because they're from every nation, from tribes and tongues and languages. And they are standing. How do you stand without a body? I don't know. And they're clothed in white clothes. How do you wear clothes without a body? I don't know. But I know it's apocalyptic. And so they're speaking in images. Here are those pure because of Christ, standing before God and worshiping Him who sits upon the throne. And so we'll get to worship. We're fully conscious, as conscious as we are now, with the, the whole host of desires, but none of them sinful. Glory to God. Right? All right. The last one is Jesus' teaching on the rich man and Lazarus, which I just felt like it was a lot of text to include. So I'm just going to open up to Luke 16. I'm going to read a few of these verses. Here Jesus is teaching about death. And what happens after death? So he begins. Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The only point I'm trying to make right now is it is a state of consciousness. And it is very clear that the rich man, now in Hades, hell as it's named here, uh, knows what's going on. He knows so much of what's going on, he goes on later and says, hey, can you send somebody back to warn my brothers? Like he still cares about his family back on earth. And then Abraham says, no, they have the law and the prophets. And he said, but, but no, if, send back Lazarus or something. Like, let somebody rise from the dead. If somebody rises from the dead, they'll believe. Great line. Because, of course, later, Christ does rise from the dead, and they don't believe. And Abraham says, no, even if somebody rises from the dead, they won't believe. Hint, hint, prophetic foreshadowing. Right? So, Fully conscious after death. The next one is the sweetest. It is a state of fellowship with Christ. We will experience a richer fellowship than was even possible on earth in our bodies. Philippians chapter 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So what happens 
to the believer when they die. They depart and are with Christ immediately. That is wonderful news. Did you notice the little details in the story of Lazarus in the parable? When he died, what happened? Angels showed up instantly and carried him to heaven. The rich man died and all of a sudden he was just in Hades. The, the, the aloneness starts right away. But for the believer, the care starts right away. We're immediately in the presence of the Lord. What, what a joy. Um, the next one, I somehow deleted the, the verse reference, 2 Corinthians. should be 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, he talks about being at home. He means that our soul is at home in our bodies. Like the place where it was designed to be. Ah, I'm home. I'm in the body that God created for me to have. But so long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For the Lord is not here right now and will not be here until his return. So to be in our bodies right now is to be away from the Lord. And if, if that's the case, we right now have to walk by faith, not by sight. We don't get to see Jesus. Ours is a life of faith, of, of trusting his word. And then he goes on and says, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Oh, that's so sweet, right? Like God designed us to be embodied spirits. And so when our soul is in our body, life is good. That's how it should be, right? So we're at home. But then he switches where home is in the second half of the verse and says, yeah, but I'd rather just depart and be at home with Christ. That's a, a truer and better home to be with him. Of course, when the, when the Savior was dying on the cross, the man next to him repented, and the Lord said to him, truly, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Make it clear, you don't wait until the resurrection, like kind of like a life pause. Everybody just doesn't know what's happening. And then at the resurrection, we all wake up and know what's happening. No. We are conscious throughout, from now and forever. Conscious. We will we'll experience the severing of body and spirit, but when that happens for believers, we are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord. And then God's, Jesus' comforting words in John 14, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. All right, I've got a quote, which I will read several times if you want me to, because you, you're going to want me to, because it's so good, and I, I didn't include it in here. It's by Thomas Watson, who's a Puritan. It says, Death severs the union between the body and the soul. Death severs the union between the body and the soul, but perfects the union between Christ and the soul oh yes yes 
Death comes as an enemy, severing the body and the soul. And because of Christ, as our helper, uniting the soul to Christ. So death severs the union between the body and the soul, but perfects the union between Christ and the soul. All right, the last thing to say about believers then, before we get to unbelievers, this state, this intermediate state that we've been talking about is a state of expectation. State of expectation. We will be looking forward to the day of resurrection when we can again be united with our bodies the way that we were designed to be. So throughout this time that we've been talking, we will be bodiless souls. But we know, and we're going to get to the resurrection as its own topic later on as we talk about the end times, the resurrection is coming. And at that day, what is the resurrection but the reuniting of soul and body? And we will anticipate that even in heaven. It's not that we won't be happy. We'll be in the presence of Jesus way better than here, right? To, 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 um, to die is gain. We will be glad. We will be at home with Christ. And yet, we will be anticipating being at home with Christ in our bodies. That's the eternal state. That's, that's the end and so we will ever be with the Lord, is, is in our bodies. And we're going to be anticipating that day. So Romans 8 says that we groan e inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. The, the Christian message is good news for bodies as well as souls. Our eternity is not to be spent as souls on clouds in some spiritual dimension. We will be, for a time, the intermediate state, bodiless souls in the presence of the Lord until the time He's designed for the great resurrection. And from that time and for all time, we will be embodied people once again. Living people on a planet Earth with Jesus Christ among us and somehow God the Father Himself providing light and glory for all of creation. What a day. We're going to be excited about that day even though we're already in heaven. How cool is that? We're like still going to be excited about something else about to happen. Probably bugging the Lord. So... <laughs> It, are we there yet? <laughs> are we there yet? So 1 Corinthians 15. I love talking about this stuff. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So Christ is the first fruit. He's the first one to come up from the ground. But if he is the first fruit, there's a whole harvest coming. That's the day of resurrection when we will be made like Him in a resurrected body. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. 
This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What a day. When finally the victory that Christ earned 2,000 years ago spreads itself across all creation and death is gone. All right. So it is for the believers. For unbelievers, it is similar and in every way different. <laughs> it is similar in that they will also be in a state of bodiless existence. So for them as well, there will be a severing of body and soul, as we could think of the rich man in Hades. It's a state of consciousness as he desired that his relatives not come and join him. It is a state of torment as we see clearly. I am in anguish sends someone with just a drop of water to help me. And then 2 Peter 2.9 says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, you could think of them as, as parallel but opposite. We will be in the presence of the Lord, the fullness of joy, yet anticipating more. And they will be in anguish and torment, yet dreading more. And so the last one is a state of dread. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the final state for the unbeliever is a bodily existence in hell. A, a judgment born soul and body forever. And Lord, give us a heart for the lost. All right. Well, I've saved three minutes, which is more than enough time for all the questions. So, yes. I don't know exactly what they know or how much they know. It's clear that they know some things. They know, for example, that Christ hasn't returned to earth. They know that there is still the suffering church upon the earth and that more are being gathered to their number. Um, the rich man seems to know that his family still isn't following God. But is there like a periscope or what? I don't know. Like I don't know how much. I don't know how much is 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 known by individuals. Yeah, um, I've heard that. 
So, yeah, uh, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses. Um, I tend to think of that cloud of witnesses as those who witness to us and provide to us their testimony. Because what that's at, that's at uh, Hebrews 11, where it's this just litany of faith, you know. And then it says in chapter 12, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, those who have testified to the Lord through every age that we thou we now look to, not necessarily sort of a Colosseum style heaven that they're all peering into earth. I don't know that the scripture says anything contrary, like that they can't see what's going on, but I, I haven't seen anything definitive that they know the details. So, so I'm not sure what the scripture is clear on is that we are conscious and aware and that we still have desires and how those desires would not include our families. Even the, even the evil rich man included his family. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a hundred percent, which would mitigate against maybe seeing everything going on on Earth. I don't know how you could watch everything going. I mean, it would be like watching bad reality TV or something. You know what I mean? Like it just makes you miserable. Like, <clears throat> doesn't sound like heaven. Right. So. Correct. Correct. So this is where I think we, we kind of bring our, our, our tiny craft up to the shores. We've kind of made our journey, and, and there's no more water to keep going. I, I don't think the scripture continues to say, there won't be tears, there won't be sorrow. He will wipe away every tear. So how, how that gets reconciled, I can tell you, I can tell you as a parent, the Lord's going to have to wipe away my tears. Right? I mean, like, this is how it goes. Like, when it says that, I believe him that he will, and that that's why I won't be sad. Because otherwise, what, do I forget everything? Like, there's a whole lot of suffering that happened. So, we'll trust him that he will make us joyful. And I don't know what we will know. Yeah. I, I don't have room, and I'm, you know, just catching questions as we go. I, I don't, I don't have room for ongoing sorrow in the presence of the Lord. I don't, I don't think that's the testimony of Scripture, be it before or after the resurrection. There is a little bit of tension there when we say we are, we are joyful and happy, but still anticipating the resurrection. Anticipation can be a very joyful anticipation, but it is an unfulfilled longing also. So there is something there, but I think that unfulfilled longing, a happy expectation for something is very different than a grief-filled sorrow, which I do believe is gone at that point. Sarah. Is there any 
dragon is heaven is I fulfill the desire that we've always had, which is God Himself. Mm -hmm. And so to me there's gonna be a really mysterious way where God has fulfilled every desire we've always had with himself. Yes. And so we don't look at things the way we have here. We don't look mm -hmm. at our family the same way. We don't mm -hmm. look at I totally agree. Um, I, okay, I agree on the level that God will be enough to fulfill absolutely everything. And that's part of the reason I would say I just don't see sorrow in heaven because we're in the immediate presence of God. And in his presence is fullness of joy. The only thing I would want to push back on is we'll still be human beings. And, and how that comes together, I'll just say I don't know. I don't, I don't know I, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I know God's justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do we even have a hell? And why do we even have loved ones who are going to have to suffer? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, yes, I mean, we're always due to creative beings. We're just being the creative beings. Mm -hmm. But I mm -hmm. do think, though, we don't have a proper understanding yeah. of the emotions here. Uh, absolutely. Yes. With regards to death and the intermediate state, how is that applied to all right, with regards to death and the intermediate state, how is that applied to Enoch and Elijah? So Enoch and Elijah were the two people uh, in, that we know of, that clearly said in Scripture, that were taken directly to heaven. Um, so I, I actually wondered that as we were... Um, there aren't any verses. Um, so it seems like there could be Three people with bodies in heaven. We know our Lord has one right now. So wherever heaven is, uh, he is there bodily. Because he has been resurrected. And he's the first fruits, and we will be resurrected too. Um, it's possible that they were just transformed to have uh, it's essentially incorruptible or eternal bodies at the time. That's, I guess, where I would lean. <laughs> Haven't been there. Uh, so when you're talking about the thief on the cross, so would that be kind of the same for everyone in the Old Testament who looks forward to Christ? Like, not that they're waiting for him to die and be resurrected, but that they would just go? Oh, that's, that's fun. Yes. So what happened to believers who died in the Old Testament? They were taken into the immediate presence of God is what happened. Well, how could that be? Their sins hadn't been paid for. Exactly right. And so God, this is almost hard to say, owed a debt for showing mercy to them. His justice was owed a debt, if you will. So when Christ died, he died for those who already had been receiving mercy and all who would receive mercy at one moment in time. And he paid for it, for it all in both both directions. So yes, I think uh, the Old Testament saints were immediately in the presence of God as well. Great. Um, there's more questions, I know. Um, but we will be here next week, so that's good. Um, I'll be up here for a few more minutes if you've got questions. Um, thank you for your great attention to this. Uh, love talking about this.